Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Bulls Shit. This is Bullshit is the EP. The track you just heard was Take No Heroes. Bob Wilson bringing it to the States courtesy of Rebirth Records. Bullshit is from Gothenburg, Sweden. Fucking awesome, aggressive, raw, pure, fucking hardcore. In a time when there's so many different elements to hardcore and so many different people adding the suffix and whatever before the term core, it's great just to hear balls of the wall, short, sweet, powerful fucking hardcore. And I do believe that Sweden and a lot of the bands from Europe are actually the best at just keeping hardcore pure, plain and fucking simple. And hats off again to Bob Wilson for being a refined gentleman able to seek out some of the coolest shit, not only in America now, but raising his fingers all the way out to the fucking globe, people. Support Rebirth Records. Yeah, 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 I know. I know. This hardcore was announced, and then um, it went on sale. There wasn't a, a podcast, really, and then, you know, things get crazy, I get a little silent and people start calling me and sending fucking messenger pigeons and death threats and flowers that explode and all this other goofy shit, but I'm back. It's been a very exciting period of time that we announced this is Hardcore Fest as per our last episode when we spoke on this and then when it went on sale. The details that I can give you are pretty plain and simple. This is Hardcore is selling very well. And it is due to the people who support This Is Hardcore every year and those who have never been to the fest but are looking forward to it. I've got a lot of people, this is my first time, I'm really excited. And again, this goes back to the whole team for everything that they've done. And, you know, we had Sonny, Elise working last minute, try to make sure these announcements went up right. Lennon, who's in a million bands and playing every single day of the fest, he's playing at least one band this year, who handled the artwork, inspired by Mike Barletti. They say it takes a village, and it definitely does take a group of really good friends to look out and get this thing off the ground. And this just stays intact with everything we've been up to at Philly Hardcore shows. Um, In the last week... The Drain Show, June 9th at the first Unitarian Show, completely sold out. And then the May 21st No Pressure Show, um, also sold out on Underground Arts. Incendiary, that's halfway sold out. We've got some cool shows coming up. And the only way you're going to get to it is if you go, whether it's on the internet or you know show up and pay, it's up to you. But this shit does not happen without your support. Um you can go to philly-shows or phillyacshows.com. The next show will be at the Yard Skate Park, Cycle of Abuse, Break the Cycle, Greed Worm, Street Shrug, Downhill. It's a sucky show. Then we've got Broken Val, Terrena. This is our boys in 185 miles south. They say that this is the best band from the Inland Empire the or whatever you want to call that California scene. Probably fucking made so many people mad saying that. They might actually be Nardcore, so I should probably call them Inner Empire. Um, but Tarina, I heard that they're the they're the fucking band right now from there. So we're going to go and give them some love and check them out. Conduit, Keith, not quite there professionally doing jujitsu, but kicking some ass, but still has time to play some shows. A Road and Lasting Dose. This is uh, April 26th at the Kensington Ministry. 
there's actually so much we got going on. The best thing to do is just to go to the websites, go to the social medias, Philly HC shows on Instagram and Twitter. And also we run the Facebook. I mean, even cool ass shit that's not exactly our shows. Greg has two shows in New Jersey, including the one at the Anchor Rock Club come at the end of the month. Fury of Five is playing out in Asbury Park. There's shit all over, man. This is a great time for hardcore. So many cool bands coming through, and the list just goes on and on and on. The only way that you are going to find out about this is if you go to social medias or the websites. So now that we've touched on the Philly Hardcore shows and this is hardcore, I can say that the people that have stood up for this hardcore and really started pushing it early, not just the sponsors, but the actual bands involved. And it's cool when we put a show on and the bands repost, but I've always found it fucking goofy that you book a band and, you know, it's a hardcore fest. So, you know, it does big part of the community is seeing what's going on. And there's definitely people who may not follow different pages. And this goes not just for this hardcore, but all fest. There's certain goofy people in, in bands that just don't like sharing shit. I don't really want to fuck up our feed by, like, you know, punishing people. It's like, no, it's not punishing. It's called promoting because. However, we have a lot of really good friends, and it's always awesome to see that it's the old school people that you would think probably don't have social media down well enough, and yet they're the ones pushing it the hardest. Earth Crisis, Integrity, Gorilla Biscuits. Gorilla Biscuits doesn't even have a band account. So you got Siv, you got Wally, you got Luke. Everyone's out there pushing the fucking thing and you got some of these newer cats whose bands want to get the big scrot oh they got the booking agent and the manager and they don't even got the balls to post it it's a goofy look if you're a young kid don't be goofy don't be too cool to post and tell people you're playing this is hardcore um so far everybody seems psyched everybody seems that it's going to be a great year hopefully the weather sticks out with us we're back in august and the only other thing I can tell you is that it's not just going to be... I mean, it's this is hardcore. At the end of the day, it's a show. With so many people coming, we got to accommodate. Got to get some more food trucks. Got to get some more organization as far as different tables going. Hopefully have some old friends come back and vend. New people coming. If you're interested in vending, if you're interested in sponsoring, you know, get in touch. Joe, hardcore at Gmail. Joe at thisishardcorefest.com. Still got some cool shit going on, and we'll be dropping this by May, giving people the lowdown on the other shit that we have going on. The focus of this remaining portion of the episode is going to go to discussing not only E-Town Concrete as a short general overview, but deliberately the celebration of 20 years of the Renaissance, which was just a day or so ago. Um, this is to me one of these, I mean, like every record, if you really love it, you're going to personally remember things that you did, the people you may have listened to with it back when you would listen to a record in a car with a friend for the first time. I don't even know that's possible anymore. I think everything just goes to people's telephones and then everybody you just ubiquitously is aware of it and one sentient. Yes, I've acknowledged that this record came out and that's the end of it, but at the time in which this specific record came out. I remember it was uh, the spring of 2003. Punishment had 
just beginning to finish up the record and started pushing towards doing a tour in the summertime of 2003. And initially the plan would have been Ringworm, Shattered Realm, and Punishment. And then typical to Shattered Realm of that time, those guys were unable to keep whatever lineup together and just chose to not tour. And it ended just being Punishment opening for Ringworm, which Ringworm was doing, believe at the time they were doing 20 years of the Promise record. And, but that didn't jump off until, you know, later that summer. So this record ended up being like the backdrop for so much really fucking cool shit that whole spring. I mean, I remember all of us listening to it in the car and all of us being like probably six or seven people in a small car going from the original O Street Santucci's to watch some movie. And I just remember the first time hearing so many nights was in that car, just fucking mind blown by it. And um, one of the key figures who was just super psyched about it was a, a friend of ours who obviously you've seen potentially if you're from Philadelphia, you've seen tattoos and t-shirts about Dan Stoney, but Stoney like, fell in love with this record. And so we go to get Santucci's, which is like an awesome pizza spot, but this is the original spot that's no longer there back in the neighborhood. Ironically, E-Town Concrete would play in that neighborhood. Um, what was it? A, four years before that record came out, they played the neighborhood in a Gianieri. And um, so everybody in the neighborhood was already huge fans. I mean, grew up. These kids all grew up seeing... E-Town Concrete, not just at big clubs, but in small places and weird places in Philadelphia. So, to me, I feel like this was like one of the craziest summers of my entire life. And with, you know, like so many different things going on. Like, this record comes out. Uh, we were listening to it at the hotel before we did the AFI music video thing. I remember listening to it in the van that we got to drive us all from Jay and Paul's apartment, house, whatever you want to call it, to the airport. It just like was with us through everything. And especially with the fact that that summer, Punishment, Ringworm, we took Stoney on the tour, that it was extra special because he had never toured with us. And the following the following fall of, two, which was, um, actually no, it was, was it two years? Yeah. Two years later, he would pass away in a tragic car accident. So some of the things that really stick with me emotionally are just the fact that during this time period, like there was no, there was nothing you could do to shit on this record to us because everybody listened to it and everybody loved it. And it just was the backdrop for us. You know, it was like one of the great, I mean, and you're not talking about a bunch of dudes from the neighborhood who don't fucking listen to punk and don't listen to hardcore. I mean, everybody who I'm talking about, you know, Nikki who had a horror show, uh, George and all them were going crazy. Every fucking American Nightmare show, every weekend there was three or four shows to go to. It was a wild time. But still, that being said, when the Renaissance came out, there was really nothing like it and 20 years later in hindsight there's not much else like it 
And it it goes back to the beginning of Fury of Five. You know, um, they were a band. Obviously, everybody knows E-Town. Stands for Elizabeth, New Jersey. Pretty centrally located right off the Jersey Turnpike. The iconic Jersey skyline of the refinery and such is, you know, became like literally on the album cover for Renaissance. And um, two years after this would come out, or actually the year after this come out, people would see all that in real life. I remember a friend being like, oh my God, it really is Elizabeth. And that really is the stuff. It's like, yeah, they didn't make that shit up. You know, for those who went to Hellfest in 2004 in Elizabeth, New Jersey, they saw the iconic, you know, scenery that was uh, E-Town put on the record cover. And, you know, there there's a different, there's different angles and scopes to look at this kind of record. For people who were way too cool in 1995 when, E-Town dropped the first demo, you know, that, that's on you. That just means that you 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 missed the fuck out because I'm going to tell you, the, the, as the kids would come, to, as it would become to, in a positive way, be called the Red Demo. That, that, that Just Move It demo is something different. And you could hear it, you could hear the beginnings of it. You really could. And, um... I remember specifically getting that from Rick to Life, the Just Move It demo. And then I got the Prepare for Combat demo the first time E-Town played in the area. And it's weird because now I live close to that area. Uh, Beaver College, which is now called Arcadia University, um, Walt Cadmus, and the quote-unquote Clockwise Crew, which is like Step Ahead, which is now interesting because now Dave House and his whole thing is like a totally different universe than when he was with Step Ahead. But back then in the 90s, the Roxborough dudes had shows up here and they had a little hardcore crew called Clockwise Crew. And they were trying to be like the Posse crew at the time. And they put this show on. It was like H2O, Fury of Five, E-Town Concrete, Bound. I mean, there was a ton of bands. And the interesting thing was that was the last time that would Henry would play with E-Town Concrete, former bass player. He would get into a fight on stage and then he would kick, get kicked out. And then, um, but I bought that demo tape from them at that Philly show. So E Town, the the green as the green demo people would call it, um, just one one level up more than the red demo. Anthony's voice got more visceral. Yeah, you know, I mean you gotta remember he dropped that record when he was fifteen. So is you know he's stepping into his voice more. Um, they had a a better feel of the songwriting. But I mean, nothing to take away from the red demo. But the red, the, the the green demo, still to this day, might be one of the best '90s demos. Period. And um, also, back when Rick to Life was still in the mix for everybody, he had dropped the New Jersey Brotherhood seven inch with Second to None with Joe Nunn and Gene's band at the time, and un- under appreciated release, but also very limited. I don't think that it got out as much as the other records did, uh, despite the clamor and saying that Rick like boot, Rick may have bootlegged it thousands of times. It's like, I don't know. Looking at it now, it's a, that's a harder back-to-basics 7-inch to find than you think. So maybe people are just making some of the shit up, though. There was tons of funny shit that would come from the back-to-basics world and Rick to life, which would be that Rick would release the first LP, uh, on CD um, in 1998 
And the funny thing about that was that I got the original, I guess we call it the original cover with this weird like silver star on it, Time to Shine. And I we got that because I, I booked the show and Rick to Life had them. And uh, for me, I, I just thought it was cool that Rick to Life was putting it out. But within a little bit of time, it turned there were a lot of drama with it. Rick wasn't being square and honest. And E-Town was, to my acknowledgement, the first band not only did to put on a song, but to like, like, in what few, like you know, with no social media, only through zines, they were the first band to like legitimately break from Rick to Life. Um, but what's bizarre is when they did their record release at the Pipeline, I was at that show. They did do the song Shady, even though Rick was in the room, which is kind of funny. Shady would end up being on the, um, an EP that was released by some record label. I forget if they're from like Finland or something. They're called Cartel Records. They put out a bunch of cool shit. But the Fuck the World EP, that was when it called Shady. And um, obviously, E-Town broke from Rick. But that, that going back to Time to Shine, again, E-Town never really got their due, to my opinion. And there was a lot of shit that really got capped up for no reason. And... There was a bizarre element of hardcore people who looked at anything like rap or street with disdain. And I think that that kind of had a thing to seg- segregate people who may have actually enjoyed the autocracy. But like, they, I, I hate this fucking term. It's literally one of my like pet peeves. But there was like, oh, I don't listen to all that wigger music. And I, you know, for the obvious connotations of, what it what it implies. I, I've always hated the term. And um obviously we were all part of that world and you know, for all the different reasons of where we grew up and et cetera, et cetera. I'm not gonna go down that road again. But I really do think that people really misunderstood or misplaced E Town Concrete in some gimmick world where dude, there's there's very few people that I know of who can handle or stand with any member of that band, whether it's Anthony on vocals, Dave, Eric, Teddy, I mean, we're talking, Etown Concrete is top class, top class fucking musicians from the from the get-go, regardless of what the, the lyric content was or what dudes were on stage or what the people in the crowd do, like, the, the lasting history that builds up to the point where this record comes out is that everybody in Etown Concrete are actually accomplished real fucking musicians. So I always found it a little bizarre to see people give E-Town Concrete slack, give them some kickback, you know, not give them the, their due because of the fact that, and, and this goes also bizarrely to the next thing I was going to segue into, you know, um, today there is almost like this cheeky, love of bad rap metal from the 90s and new metal and the Ozfest and like people who listen to hardcore a, 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 um, place themselves in the hardcore world via the internet that make entire lifestyle choices and dress and almost like their entire identity is oh I love this stuff and it's like really do because it was crap and it it was so crappy that even E-Town Concrete couldn't even get into that world because the people were just not into real music. This isn't a shit. I'm kind of glad that E-Town really never picked up in that world. I was okay and like, hey, man, cool. You know, um, as Hatebreed came up, 
you know, there's a huge part of this, isn't it? And something that kind of gets lost is like, um, back in 1997, there was this record label, East Coast Empire. Dave from Connecticut ran it. And obviously, Jamie, even though the beginning of the big blow up of Hatebreed would happen, Jamie had a huge influence in the entire Northeast hardcore scene. He could get you shows all over. He would put records out and then send mailers and hope to help his bands get shows. He was really industrious very early on and being a guy who not only released his bands but also helped them get shows. And he linked up with E-Town Concrete early. And Anthony is always, um, Anthony and E-Town, oh, um, Anthony from E-Town and Jamie from Hatebreed had always gotten along. And there was tons of E-Town and Hatebreed shows, Pennsylvania, um, New Jersey, uh, it's just been a thing. And so eventually as Jamie's star would rise and he would join Headbangers Ball, he would have a bigger hand in helping E-Town Concrete in form. But I would have rather seen ultimately E-Town find a world in more like the burgeoning Ozfest kind of world that was starting to come out at the end of the 90s and early 2000s. But back to what I was saying is, you know, through the through the 2000s as the stuff that was really big in the late 90s was starting to fall off, E-Town could still play their own shows in the East Coast. You know, um, they would play the Trocadero. they put, like, Agents of Man and somebody on it. Like, they were always looking out for their friends. And, you know, it was an odd time for hardcore because we'd gone from having some huge bands, you know, like, and E-Town, because they were that band and they were very independent, I don't ever recall ever having to deal with a booking agent at all for Anthony and E-Town Concrete. It was always like linking up with those dudes and them dudes doing cool shows. So for a time when the big VODs, the Mad Balls, the Earth Crisis, they all kind of hit that moment where there was a wall. And, you know, like for Earth Crisis, they released Slither and, and, the, and the fans were falling off. VOD went a different, different direction and they were falling off. Mad Ball, Freddie just straight up, he had court shit. They stopped playing not too... Not too not too soon after Hold It Down came out. And so there, you know, that, that was like a weird moment. Fury of Five was gone. Etown Concrete was still out there bringing that shit from the late 90s. And I think that that kind of gets lost to people who weren't around at the time. That, you know, when Hardcore took a shift in a different direction, he, uh, you know, Etown's second coming, I think, was just as fucking visceral and aggressive, if not even more so, with even uh, smarter lyrical content and a lot of really cool like you know different vibes but keeping the aggression on and I just don't know if there was ever a world where E-Town Concrete could fit purely in a metal because metal people looked at rap and looked at dudes to dress like that as less than even though musicianship wise again those the combination was unfuckwithable and so that's where I'll leave my little uh, conjecture and opinion on probably why there was a limited immediate reaction to this Renaissance record. A lot of it really does have to do with the way that people who were absorbing this music and their own prejudices were keeping this band, which I mean, live, unfuckwithable crowd. I mean, from early on when they started really doing it, to the point where they had their own, I mean, by the time they were real, like, you know, really moving, they had a huge fan base in, in terms of, like, what you need to pack clubs 
like the Trocadero and the Starland Brawl in New Jersey. I mean, they would kill it at the church Birch Hill to the point where they had to move to Starland, which is the bigger room. And it is kind of serendipitous that they dropped this record in 2003. Like, I, you know, they play Hellfest and have one of the craziest fucking sets of the whole weekend. And probably that probably is one of the best sets I've ever seen them play. Huge fucking crowd. The momen- no matter how many people were getting punched and all the crazy shit, there was thousands of people knew all the words from the record. It was only a year old at the time. And it just shows you, just like, for me, it just shows you that even with all the things that were against them, you know, like the the cool guy hardcore scene not being there and the different prejudices that this record really shined through within a year and it was the younger crowd, you know, that really picked up on it. And at this time, you know, by the time the record dropped, there was now Jamie in place at Headbangers Ball, and I think it even made I think it even made it to like a CD compilation. But I'm not totally sure about that. I vaguely remember one of my homies being like, "Oh yeah, I heard them on a compilation." I'm like, "Oh they, yeah, they probably were on some compilation." I didn't never even knew about it. Um. I also think maybe it helps that uh, Jamie and the dude Christian from El Nino was on that fucking awesome song, Battle Lines. Maybe maybe that had some crossover, but ultimately, when you listen to this record, I, I don't know where your head goes, but me, I just was just fucking mind-blown. Like, the actual, like, just... This is a band, again, I, I've been... I, you know, seeing them since the demo tape, since they had a blue t-shirt with Sub-Zero on the back that said, prepare for combat, you know, so to me to hear this amazing studio release, and I mean, the track listing, everything from it, and it's like, you know, who else could take a word like mandibles, the term mandibles, and turn it into like a sing-along anthem, especially in the from 2014, the first time they played this hardcore till they played Tsunami, I believe, in 13. And then they would eventually headline This Is Hardcore. And then, you know, their sets at Keystone Jam and FYA recently. You know, Mandibles is a fucking classic today. It's amazing to see. It shows you the testimony to the quality craftsmanship of the lyrics the the songwriting and bizarre enough and I said this too is like this is an hour long record with songs that are three minutes long and the first four songs if you just had them as a live set that's like that's almost what half of hardcore bands play live anyway like 13 15 minute sets so just have kids in the modern day whose own bands probably probably play no more than 15 minutes captivated by the whole record just shows you something but to me i feel as if anyone who listens to the renaissance if you have it you just check it out just so that we can say what the fuck is joe talking about but if you haven't given it its due and haven't given it the love it deserves maybe never even heard it i think you could give it a shot it's it's different it's different in a lot of ways it it has elements of very I won't. You can't, I hate the term pop because the pop just eludes some less than value shit. Which I would also agree, pop music by nature sometimes isn't the best shit. But they have these awesome fucking hooks. Is probably the better way. Like amazing catchy hooks, bouncy riffs, choruses that are insane. And um, it, especially, especially, you know, almost the entire record 
has a, a great balance of that that those three those three or four things. You know, you have these bouncy, chuggy riffs. You have the obvious moshing parts for the hardcore kids, but Mandibles really does start it off, and then you go right into more than incredible, which again, I mean. For all the crazy shit was going on in this world, like I don't know why that ended didn't end up on like a Tony Hawk skater video or you know like at least some cool MTV two fucking snowboarding video. I remember when they did Doggy Dogs, you could see that a lot. Whoever was working for Roadrunner probably had some hand in getting those songs on there. But I think that song more than incredible should have been definitely looped in as some kind of cool. Back in the early two thousands, they would call it extreme sports. I think more than incredible definitely would have fit in well in the extreme sports soundtrack department. I think they kind of fucked up. And then um, privately, Metroid has always been one of my favorites for a lot of reasons. I think not only just as a nerd fan of the video game from the outset, but the lyrics and that combination. It's a hard fucking song. It's a hard song now, but it's clever. It's It's got catchy parts. It's got hold awesome breakdowns, and it's got there's the most like simple like awesome sing-alongs and it's such a good element it brings the crowd in that's a big thing i think that this record does is this record more than any of them really can bring a live crowd to the front once they start singing the songs and i saw that i saw that at fya it was mostly a sing-along set you know it just shows you that so many people listen to this record for so long that they just know the words back and forth and I, it must be interesting. And eventually, you know, me and Anthony have gone back and forth. I would love to have him on the podcast and just get his specific viewpoint because I can imagine that there has to be some vindication knowing that years later, everybody can sing almost every word to most of the songs on this record. And I mean, again, the song So Many Nights, not only not only just because of the, the I mean, you, you felt it, you felt it early on in Time to Shine. You know, there's elements of the softer lyrical, um, what's it say, like more of a, an ever clear kind of like soft, quiet rapping, real shit, but with the rock background, you hear it. And then when it kicks into that just anthematic chorus, it, it's just unbelievable. It really is. You know, you even have like the second or third time, um, you know, you got the overlap of Dave and it's just fucking, it's, I, I imagine what it would feel like to do that in the studio and just be like, yo, this is this fucking song, man. And I mean, so many nights in itself would definitely be in, to me, a top record of the entire 2000s. I mean, not a record, but a top song, like a top single from the records of the 2000s, period. For the same reasons. And then um, in thinking about this record in the 20 years and wanting to do a short podcast on it, I was listening to this. And I remember when we were in this, we would listen to CDs in the Punishment Van. And you got to the point where you listen to the same CDs over and over again. And the one time, the first time we get really on the road and we're listening to it, we were kind of laughing because it's like so many nights are so emotional. Anybody who grew up that way, anyone who can relate to those lyrics, if you know, you know. Right, so here you are. You're, you're listening to this song, and you're like, "Man, it's fucking great!" Like you know, you, the moments make you feel a little emotional. Like, yeah, I remember that time. I can, I can relate to that. And then here comes "Let's Go," and Anthony says something like, "You know, we all had our share of hard times. We also have good times too. I'm feeling good right now." 
And it's like a cool thing to think that she went in the studio thinking that that song was going to come out and that he was going to have to go ahead. And like, I got to cheer these people up, man. Like that could have been a downer. Let me just make sure everybody knows I'm feeling good. And and then they go right into uh, literally like three amazing hard fucking songs in a row. And all, I mean, in all honesty, the, the time when this was coming out, you look at some of the bands that were in the new metal world that were getting pushed. It was more just a hardened version of pop. And if you take this all the way back, you know, heavy metal in the eighties was for a scary. And then it was like, Oh, you know, like dudes in makeup and hair, girls, young teenage girls like that. So then it became pop music. And then it was the slayers and the death metals that came and kind of retook metal over to be more aggressive and like yeah this is fucking real metal you know not that iron maiden and the new album stuff wasn't badass but you know somebody had to really take metal by the balls and kick it back in at the end of the 80s and in the 90s and then once again the softer stuff the goofier stuff the the indie rock college rock post whatever you want to call it became the mainstay of rock music in the American teen mind. And at the end of the 90s was, again, kind of a mixture of this, but it was the first time that I saw a lot of, like, white kids really, like, really getting hard. Like, you know, we were from the neighborhood, so we listened to rap because that was what was in the neighborhood. But, like, by the end of the 90s and early 2000s, it was way more acceptable to be, like, a normal white kid and rapping and you know, doing your thing, and so, like, the bands, like, the Limp Biscuits and all the goofy bands that people now go over the fucking moon for and make a big deal, dude, it was all kind of cheesy and shitty to me, I never felt like anything E-Town was doing was tongue-in-cheek or shitty, I think it was organic, I feel like there was elements of all that they just were trying to pull together for the obvious reasons of where they came from and what musical backgrounds they had and their ability to play heavy, but also, you know, again, incredible song structures, really, really strong uh, choruses with good bridges, heavy-ass breakdowns at times, if you want to call them breakdowns, and just, again, more of Anthony lyrics went deeper than they ever had before. There was a few cheesy moments, and all of it really fucking stuck out against an entire world of just really corny shit where you knew like the dudes all stood in the backstage looking at themselves in the mirror and making sure their stage clothes looked cool before they got on stage lots of dreadlocks lots of goofy pants and A-Town just went out there and just looked like a bunch of dudes from New Jersey and I think that's where probably why they didn't go further in another aspect when it gets to battle lines I mean that's one of the hardest fucking songs period for all the different reasons. Just the, the, and to have a banger so later on, it just shows you that there was some thought processes to not shoving what would be B tracks or side two tracks till later on. Now, for those who are like, what the hell is a side two track? For those who don't listen to vinyl, you know, there's side one and side two or, you know, cassette for that for that argument. You know, side two, if there were to be a side two, I would think it would start somewhere around baptism. And side two is just, if not more aggressive, because you don't really have, actually, you know, with with the exception of Punch the Walls on the second half, it's all ass-kicking. 
It's all ass-kicking, cool rhythms, interesting ideas. I mean, the band themselves, Anthony excluded, you know, Teddy, Eric are just a phenomenal fucking balance in the rhythms, the rhythm section, the drums, the bass lines, um, Dave's ability to play different things, to play off of them. Very interesting music that isn't just down the middle trying to be the next you know, Ozfest opener or whatever the hell was the goal for at that time. Really, I think overlooked or under underappreciated uh, when it comes to those three in the way that they made those songs, not just as Metallica would say, stock. You know, they went above and beyond in creating a musical landscape that made the songs have a completely different flavor than a lot of the stuff that they're contemporaries, and even a lot of the hardcore bands. A lot of the hardcore bands were really lost in this time period. You know, um, by the time this record came out, uh, Terror was on the, literally on a streak. Demo had dropped, uh, first LP was out, and Terror was the fucking band. And I remember Terror having, Terror and E-Town having two of the best sets at Hellfest 2004. But, you know, you had a, a hardcore scene that was not really in in sync with itself because you had like a lot of metal things and you had the let's call it like the jade tree into the softer music that was still pretty fucking big you know there's all these different underground sounds that were still around so i don't know where e-town would have sat but i do know that the tracks really there isn't a skip on this for me at least you know like maybe maybe if you get later on you're not going to listen to doormats as much but i'm telling you Bar to none, the, the smartest thing they did with this track layout was to balance all the pieces. You know, um, Battle Lines is a fucking banger. I, I love Doormats. Maybe because it's of a length, people may not have fucked with as much, but I mean, it's only a couple seconds longer than Battle Lines. And then, you know, Punch the Walls, I think, argumentatively, could have been the end of the record. But what I found most interesting was that they did... In the Heart of the Wolves, which I had actually, I've only seen them do that once live, and it was when they opened for, or they opened it with it at East Coast Tsunami. And I was just fucking thrilled because it's just, I mean, Punch the Wolves has all the, again, the same thing we've been talking about catchy, bouncy riffs, awesome song structure, uh, great lyrics, shit that a person who might actually have lived through, and then just, the kind of shit that's going to get stuck in your head. It's got an amazing hook. In the Heart of the Wolves is just completely a different animal altogether. And again, if you if you listen to that song alone and you don't think that there's skill and craftsmanship, not just in the song structure, but the lyrics, then you're just dismissing the band because of personal you know, prejudices or grievances with how your perception of what E-Town Concrete was. Now... Now we kind of broke down the record. I, I first seen them play some of these songs. Not many of them. The the mainstay of the songs you wouldn't see till the record came out. And we actually got kicked out of a TLA show where they opened for Edema. And that's the other thing. I, and, you know, I liked it. I'll deal with that further when I have a, uh, Anthony on the podcast. But, you know, E-Town really wasn't able, in my opinion, to find equal footing on some of these tour packages back then where 20 years from now, like now it's, it would be so much easier because people had a different idea of how tour packages were to be built 
and there was probably even more nepotism, my favorite word this week, in making sure that the booking agents who are booking the tours are helping their own bands or helping the label, helping the individual labels get some of their bands out more so than, oh, this weird band from New Jersey, they're like rap dudes who want to do this. I, I have to imagine, and I hate to project this into this, but I do think that the rap element really dissuaded some people away from giving this band their pure due because 20 years later, out of all the whack fucking records that came out by so many fucking whack metal bands who were needed to hardcore shows to have a background, for all the whack quote-unquote punk records, the whack boring by-the-numbers hardcore records that kind of wet and gone, all the money spent, all the advertising wasted, paper ruined red zines where they wrote about it. And the Renaissance has a bigger fucking impact. Half of them fucking bands can't headline what E-Town can still headline. And I th- and I think it's on the strength not only of the overall E-Town timeline and their approach from the get-go, but I do think this record might have been a record that more people heard first. I don't think that there's kids in the 2017, 18, 19 who heard the Green demo first. They probably heard Renaissance first. And it shows you collectively that where the new metal and that kind of stuff wasn't really popular in the OOOs, you know, 10, 15 years later, it was more commonplace. And I imagine, I imagine, and I'm, I'm sub- objectively uh, to say that it finally got its foot, you know, foot in the door. And that's probably where some people heard this stuff. And, um, but to me, it's a masterpiece. And, uh, they would go on to play, as I said, Hellfest in 2004. They did some tours. And by the late part of the 2000s, they hung it up for a while, which I always thought it was weird, you know, but I mean, it, it it's not really the end of the world because obviously they've come back and they reunite it and they play shows and they've gone back to their annual New Jersey shows and you know they've they've always done a fantastic job of bringing like whatever modern bands are be it Incendiary and Gridiron you know they I mean I think there was a time period from maybe oh six to I don't know when I say oh six to oh nine. Yeah, it had to be 06 because I remember we all went down. And then, um, and that was Starland Ballroom. And then it was only a couple of years that they were back. And then, um, you know, this is a band that I think's legacy was cemented records later, which is interesting, with, with the Renaissance. 20 years later, it, it's, it's still absolutely fucking fantastic. And if you look at everything that, is was popular at that time point. But yeah, there's some converged records and some American Nightmare records and some this and that. But it's not an anomaly. I think it just became it took longer to seed in with people, but this fucking record really had a huge impact on us. And I, I speak from us first. And you know, anyone else who wants to be us can be us. And there's gonna be tons of people listening that's like, dude, I never listened to that shit and here's why or dude, I'm fifteen years older than you and we thought that was shit was corny. And it's like, all right, well whatever, you think it's corny. I will put the E Town E Town record uh, put the E Town record, the Renaissance up against any eighties record, nineties record, and say that the band playing, if they had to play in two thousand and twenty three or two thousand twenty four, 
will get smoked by E-Town Concrete live. And they've still managed 20 years later to be able to get on that stage and just perform at a high volume. You know, perform the songs and the crowd doesn't look at them and go, God, these guys are getting old. I don't know. I don't know. You know, uh, Anthony is kind of timeless looking. You know, he's my age, but he looks more like in his early 20s. So maybe he's got just a good genetics. But I think a lot of these people that cap some of these songs from these other bands really don't give the due that they need to this record. And with 20 years of listening to it and seeing in shit, I mean, it's been fuck. And we're talking about, the, I think they played Tsunami 2013, plausibly. Maybe 13, or they played 16. I can't remember which one. You know what? They did play 13. So they've been rocking and rolling back for 10 years just in the hardcore scene of just getting love whenever the fuck they play anywhere. And some of these older bands that have more at stake and you know people on the internet, they can't say the same. To me, this is a fucking masterpiece record. Um, I appreciate every time Anthony and the guys in E-Town had ever played Philadelphia. And I love that despite the fact that this guy is a true fierce fucking, I don't want to use the term mogul because it sounds almost like too Elon Muskie, but for all the things that Anthony does in his music career, in the management and all the different aspects, he still has time to celebrate this, this band that he did when he was 15 years old. This shows you just how much he gives a fuck about it. And I've had a lot of great times with him, even recently, like ran into him at the Thompson Square Park show in 2021. Uh, hung out with him a bunch of times. I mean, you know, he was at the Fury 5 record release. The man's nearly ubiquitous at this point. So, shout out to my friends in Etown Concrete for writing one of the best hardcore records, I think, potentially of all time. Definitely a record that sits with me where emotionally just invested in so many of them tracks and put that record on so many times when vibes were not what they needed to be and needed to bring the things up. And so... You give me a record, right in. Tell me a record you think that can give you the emotional chicken soup the way this fucking record does, or just stands with you for twenty years. Some of I, I I can't think of too many because because of the lyrical content, the impact it had, and just being able to see these songs live in the present and still seeing so many young kids go off. I think it's a masterpiece that I said a million times. And um, thank you, E Town Concrete, for it. And hopefully we get to have you guys back at something cool like the church or something else in 2023. Make sure you're listening to TIHC Podcast. Um, we're going to keep the episodes going. We're going to have some more recaps. We're going to be speeding up the process of these episodes because I'm going to try to get more of the This Is Hardcore artists on here. Get you listening more often. Get people excited building the anticipation up for the eventual oncoming This Is Hardcore 2023. And um, I always, I have like a countdown in my head to like, okay, I've got X amount of days till uh, this, X amount of days till that. We're officially at, as I'm recording this, at 110 days that This Is Hardcore. So maybe I can get 20 20 or maybe maybe 20 podcasts out maybe more we're gonna try to get more people and um i 
appreciate you guys listening. Thank you for supporting the shows that have been going on. The guys have really been doing a great job with the bong shows. We get so much more cool shit. Um, going to be doing, uh, we got about another week and we're going to announce another show for the church towards the end of June. There's so much cool shit. I can't wait. Bob's been getting ready. I know he's going to be dropping his uh, FYA fest probably in the next couple months. So thank you for the constant support. Remember, we have Incendiary, which is um, Friday, June 23rd. It's halfway sold out. And um, see you in person or back on another episode. Take care.